Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Anthony Cruz. And I'm your co-host, Sharon Mandur. And we are here with Jacob Vanderhoven. Thanks for being here, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we start, Anthony, do you read manga? Uh, No, uh, the closest I've gotten is watching Naruto. Okay, well, Jacob, have you ever heard of Kingdom? I have, actually. (laughs) It's rank it up. Okay, because it's like, I feel like it's in the same period of time that you study. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, Kingdom, for those people who do not know, is a kind of like, you know, fictionalized account of the unification of China in the 3rd century BCE. So one of the main characters is a advisor to Prince Ying Zheng, who's the um, person who's going to eventually become the first emperor of a unified China. And my research kind of focuses on changes to identity and locality that occurred during the unification all those years, centuries ago. Okay, so you're writing a history, right? Um, I'm writing a um, cognate that like kind of like examines the history, primarily the Shuji, which is this mm-hmm. Han dynasty era. Uh, the Han are the dynasty that comes in after the Qin dynasty collapses that mm-hmm. um, kind of like records the rise of this empire. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like attempting to look at that critically and trying to, you know, determine if there's anything I can, you know, kind of add to the substantial literature on Chinese unification. Awesome. What got you interested in this topic? I've actually been interested in ancient China ever since I was like a little kid, like around like grade six. Um, do any of you play uh, historical strategy games by any chance? Yes, Rise of Nations, my go-to. <laughs> of course. I will you know, crush like, anybody except the level, really hard CDU. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, for me, like when I was growing up, Civ Four was like my original, and they had a game mode called um, Chinese Unification, and mm-hmm. it like placed you in as one of the seven great states that were competing to unify China, and it was like a very fun setup. They completely redid the game for it, and it always got me interested in the period, and then. What got me even more interested was that there was almost nothing in like my school library about it or like anyone could find just like on the general history of like you know China um and like it kind of like felt like almost I was discovering a whole new history that like I really had never been exposed to very much okay so I wanted to ask you do you know what it was like before the unification could you like give us a little bit of background Mm -hmm. yeah so before the Unification, China had been ruled under the Zhou Dynasty. Mm -hmm. The Zhou Dynasty is the second um, oldest Chinese dynasty that we have historical records for, and it had ruled for roughly 800 years, from 1046 BCE according to tradition, and till 256 um, BCE, about two years after the first emperor was born. And this dynasty kind of ruled in a feudal manner. If you're familiar with, like, you know, Western European civilization, it's kind of similar to the Middle Ages. There's a monarch, but he has a bunch of vassals beneath him. Mm -hmm. And the first emperor's ancestors, the Qin dynasty, were like formerly those uh, vassals. So if you imagine like kind of Game of Thrones, like that's kind of like, you know, in a broad sense, the political situation. Okay. So before the unification, there was a period of prolonged warfare uh, known as the Warring States period, very creatively named. Um, And that had um, been going on for about 150 years. And during this period, seven states emerged, um, the Qin being the, not the most, the largest, but like certainly the most well-organized and coherent. Mm -hmm. And they gradually conquered the other seven states until in 221 BCE, they conquered their last rival, the state of Qi, and declared a unified empire. So why did they feel like unifying? 
Like, why do they want to unify, I guess, is the thing. Well, that's actually what got me interested in this topic, because there's broadly, I would say, two schools of thought in mm-hmm. Chinese historiography right now. Uh, one of them argues that, like, Chinese unification was always not the norm, but it was an ideal, right, that you wanted to kind of get back to. Like, the idea that, like, um, before unification, uh, this is, like, an idea very popular with a scholar named Yuri Pines, there was, like, a vision of a unified China that was being articulated in an intellectual sense. Mm-hmm. And the Qin dynasty kind of, like, finally put that into motion. Like, all these ideas that were moving forward. Kind of like how, before German unification, there were institutions and, like, kind of thinkers who were talking about the idea of forming a unified state. Okay. I'm going to be honest, so I'm far more in a different category. Oh. People like Mark Edward Lewis, who argues that, like, Unification kind of um, occurs, and then the idea of a unified empire comes later. Like, okay. essentially, this is a uh, constructed community that's created through how the Qin Dynasty approaches, like, you know, um, its subjects, um, construction work, and it's always got to be reinvented and reimagined. And the Qin Dynasty is one of the most, like, creative periods of its reimagining. It doesn't fully work, <laughs> they only last about 14 years. But it kind of lays this foundation that gets picked up by the succeeding Han dynasty mm-hmm. that's able to last for far longer, about 400 years with a brief interruption around the turn of the millennium. Okay. So would it be accurate to to say they were kind of already culturally unified and there was just these last couple steps to really drive that forward? Uh, that's actually interesting because, if anything, they were more unified under the Zhou dynasty. The Zhou dynasty is this feudal elite, and mm-hmm. they have like common cultures, they have common customs, and they have a common ritual structure. So the Zhou monarch doesn't have a lot of political power, but he has a lot of spiritual power. So in a sense, he kind of leads all the ancestral cults. So all of these like Chinese, um, like you know, little feudal states, they have like a cult surrounding their ancestors, and this is believed to be kind of like where they get their legitimacy to rule from, and this provided a lot of cultural and elite loyalty. So, like, even though, you know, the Zhou monarch has very weak power, they all identify with each other and participate in the same events and social gatherings. When the warring states begin in the 5th century, this breaks down. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a period of, like, increasing regionalization, um, and often quite xenophobic, like, in 238 BCE. So this is during the early reign of the first emperor, before he becomes the emperor of China, there's actually an order to expel all foreigners from the state of Qin. So this is like not like non-Han Chinese individuals, but like people within from other states, like the prime minister of the state, a very powerful and interesting man named Li Shi, almost got expelled because he came from Wei, a state that's only like about two states over from the Qin heartland. So there's, mm-hmm. if anything, a greater sense of xenophobia and distinction before uh, unification. Okay, so how do they go about unifying things? Because you're talking about the warring states, but I feel mm-hmm. like not you can't just only war can't be the only solution here, especially if you have multiple states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the tricky part. Like, and There's actually a very influential critic of the Qin Dynasty, a mm-hmm. fellow named Jia Yi, and he's a early Han Dynasty scholar, and he's writing about why did the Qin Dynasty fall. He writes this very interesting mm-hmm. essay called Finding Fault in Qin. So you mm-hmm. tell, like... And... What he essentially argues is what you just articulated there, is that yeah. the Qin Dynasty did a great job of conquering everything, but they failed utterly at creating a peacetime government. Mm-hmm. He says something along the lines of, you know, during times of war, um, decisiveness and ruthlessness are valued. But times of peace, 
compliance and compromise are exalted. And the first emperor was great at the former and terrible at the latter. I kind of aim to expand on that, this mm-hmm. idea that the Qin dynasty conquers these seven states is a profound military achievement, mm-hmm. but then they fail utterly to like kind of destroy these former regional identities and get them invested in this new image of the Qin empire. Okay. Yeah, that's super interesting. It is evoking this uh, historical drama, this Game of mm-hmm. Thrones type energy, uh, all this. I'm wondering, how do you know all this? Uh, I mean, uh, how do historians know all this? All like accounts of the unification of China tend to boil down to one source. Uh, it's called the Shiji, and it was composed during the early um, first century BCE under the succeeding Han Dynasty. So this is a grand uh, world history, and um, its author, Suma Qian, who's a Han courtier, does use this term a lot, the world, by which he means China. And it goes back all the way back to the Shang Dynasty, so back in the 15th century BCE, and even beyond that into mythic times, although he actually even acknowledges in some like passages that this is kind of mythic history. It's not. It's more of like symbolic than accurate. And this kind of massive war chronicles the emperor's reign year by year, um, beginning at his like you know um, accessing year in two um, forty six BCE, and then continuing on until the downfall of his dynasty in two hundred seven BCE. But it also, very interestingly, includes biographies. So he doesn't only uh, cover the year-by-year events. He also adds in like a biography of Lishia, that uh, very influential um, statesman I mentioned, or uh, famous generals, uh, dastardly rebels. Some of these are as actual like terms. He's got like little categories for them. Mm-hmm. And throughout the Shuji, there's a length. There's a lot of um, kind of moral judgment being cast. So there's not only a narrative going here, there's also like a subtle textual narrative where the emperor's like actions are kind of being judged by this historian. Okay. Yeah, so like you can't take it entirely uncritically, but you can't do that with any historical source. So so sorry, I have uh, like just to jump in. Are you using like so are you is this your primary document that you're using to research this or are you using other documents as well? I'm using other documents in the secondary literature, but this mm-hmm. is probably the most important primary source. Yeah, because just in terms of proximity and mm-hmm. like level of detail, it's the greatest we have available. We also have a few other sources that are very helpful. Um, in 1974, they unearthed a Qin-era law code oh. um, in Henan, and it was found in like a Qin um, bureaucratic bureaucrat's team. So imagine taking your work with you to the afterlife <laughs> and. That's very informative because it kind of helps cooperate a lot of what has been written in the historical record and mm-hmm. also challenge it at certain points. And there's also a lot of uh, philosophical and uh, technological manuals that survive from this period. The Warring mm-hmm. States period was a period not only of great violence, but also great kind of intellectual creativity, um, social like kind of reform and um, like kind of like um, almost revolution and also of like technological advancement. And we have a lot of the intellectual kind of like, you know, tradition that comes down to us. None of these are like, you know, one for one historical records like the Shoji is, but they do a great job of contrasting with kind of like elaborating and contextualizing what the Shoji records. There's also archeology, span although I, you know, used archeology span where it was available, but the problem is that a lot of that's conducted in China by Chinese archeologists. Mm -hmm. So it can be rather difficult to access in the West. Okay. 
That's really cool. Uh, you mentioned some technological advancements mm -hmm. in this period. Could you uh, describe some of those? Yeah, of course. Um, so the 4th century BC in particular is a period of great proliferation of like iron items and like tools. Previously, bronze had been the dominant kind of like, you know, metal used in China. Uh, iron slowly rises both in a military context, like, you know, you get like finer swords, mm -hmm. uh, spirits, the like, but also far more advanced plows, the development of um, organized like state, um, like kind of bureaucracies, um, also the development of like advanced draining and um, ecological works, which still survive. Like we have great, like, you know, archaeological evidence of the canals dug mm -hmm. and also the uh, creation of kind of mass production in the sense, like there's actually a lot of mass produced seals, um, kind of weapons and also like, you know, material that becomes both standardized by the state and also produced on a mass scale. So it's, and that's underpinned by a massive population boom and also a kind of like massive rise in just the proficiency of production. Okay. I kind of want to circle back to that mm -hmm. uh, text you were using because it just dawned on me. I assume it's not in English or is it translated in English or do you read their writing? I don't know what if it would be Chinese or I feel very ignorant about this. No, no problem. Um, I do speak a little bit of Mandarin and read it far better than I speak mm -hmm. it. Um, it wouldn't be Chinese as we have it right now. Yeah. It would be old Chinese, which is the dominant um, kind of like literary script and spoken language. This isn't like a firm date, but until the fall mm -hmm. of the Han Dynasty in 220 AD. And the writing there uses a character script that is kind of intelligible, mm -hmm. but isn't um, like the same. Like it's been simplified uh, most famously in the 1950s under the People's Republic of China. And then the current version of the Shuji that I use is a translation that's been done into English um, by a professor and a team at uh, the University of John Hopkins in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I actually brought a few with me um, as well, just as um, like kind of like props. And they're very extensive and they've been translated for the most part in English with a large amount of footnotes, like elaborating on like, you know, there's character Jing could either mean the, um, you know, a reform conducted to the land or a mass loving of troops, depending on the context, like stuff like that, like including the detail, which is very handy. I, I swear when you were like, I and I brought some with me and I thought you were going to pull them out right now. I definitely could. They're just like under here. Oh, you actually <laughs> oh. did? Yeah. Huh? All right. Look under your desk, everyone. Yeah. All right. That's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. um, all right. I guess I wanted to circle back to why like the Qin Dynasty, I guess, didn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, because you were saying this policies weren't really intact. So what kind of policies were they implementing, I guess, that weren't working? Well, the kind of like the Imperial Qin Dynasty, I would say its policies begin to be radically different in the 4th century BCE. So mm -hmm. this is during the Warring States period. Uh, Qin is actually kind of a marginal state on the fringe of the Chinese world. Um, it's roughly contemporaries with uh, Shanxi, um, like province in China. Mm -hmm. And in that region, um, there is an invitation of an official named um, Wei Gongsun. He's also mm -hmm. known as Lord Shang, and yeah. he is a kind of like a philosopher and a politician, almost like an early Machiavelli. Mm -hmm. And he purports a very radical revision of 
Chinese um, like kind of political culture and like the relationship between an individual and the state. Mm-hmm. And it has been described as kind of proto-totalitarian. And I can see that as maybe buying in a bit too much sort of rhetoric, mm-hmm. but there is a lot to go off of it. And under his tenure starting in 360 BCE, he implements very radical reforms. Yeah. For example, he abolishes his um, hereditary privilege. Mm-hmm. He creates this like 21 system ranked uh, system of like uh, titulature that is granted to every individual in the state of Qin and awarded and promoted based on merit. So for example, if you are a valorous warrior in the Qin army, you can be promoted and you'll gain certain societal privileges. Okay. If you show cowardice, you will be demoted, shamed, perhaps even um, punished fairly. And if you perform, let's say, admiral conduct in civil society, like you Mm -hmm. turn in a fugitive or you um, display exemplary ability as like, let's say, a farmer, you can also be promoted and granted like, you know, greater privileges. So it's Mm -hmm. this meritocratic, almost technocratic, kind of like in a form of government. And it's very distinct because previously Chinese society had been very feudal in nature kind of um, you know nobles and peasants and um, this was seen as like a massive break and this is one of the things that actually makes the Qin dynasty and the Qin state look very foreign to all the other nations they actually have a reaction to this okay so when you're moving up I guess a rank it, would a rank be a way to describe it yeah, like that's uh, probably the best term what, what would you like gain from doing that do you get like a house? Do you get money? <laughs> well, actually, I'm glad you asked because um, houses were um, granted based on rank and ability. Okay. And they actually were organized this way. Um, one of the first reforms Wei Gongston implements mm-hmm. is he kind of completely revamps um, the use of color and the use of positioning in the Qin state. So, for example, mm-hmm. if you have a certain level of rank, you're allowed to wear a certain um, distinctive type of clothing. Mm-hmm. You are not allowed to wear this um, if you have a lower rank. And then likewise, with your manners, you can be moved around and granted like more, you know, um, extensive land or like, you know, um, holdings, depending on your service to the state. Okay. And so these would be very visual. Uh, you also can get exemption from certain punishments. Mm-hmm. Uh, your word is also considered more, you know, valuable compared to another one testifying against you. So in this way, it kind of like gets the individual to buy into the system oh. as they're moving up from it. So the most powerful people in the society are naturally the most invested. Okay. So it's like a self-reinforcing system. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's, the, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Um, and then there's also, but what really works, I would say, effectively is that the um, punishments for not following this well are even worse and mm-hmm. more... Uh, draconian. This is actually one of the things that like kind of like gets passed down. The Qin mm-hmm. dynasty becomes a byword for draconian and totalitarian mm-hmm. kind of punishment. And um, if you let's say fail to live up these expectations, you can be relocated from your home forcibly. Oh. You can um, be uh, mutilated, tattooed, humiliated, um, have your lands taken away, your family broken up. So like, there's a lot of carrots. And a lot of like very dangerous sticks that can be <laughs> applied, um, depending on your conduct. Okay, so this is the system that they wanted to apply once they, uh, so it just didn't turn out well. Well, it turned out well in the short term. Okay. Because like initially, it seems like there was a buy-in mm-hmm. to this uh, new system. It certainly worked very well in Chin because mm-hmm. this gets the south in the three sixties. 
Uh, the Qin state kind of like becomes probably the most powerful state over the preceding century. Mm -hmm. And it's able to like kind of access and use this peasantry in a way that none of these states are able to. And we have actually contemporary like observers who comment on this. There's a famous uh, military kind of like handbook, the Wu Chi. Mm -hmm. And in it, the master kind of like does this, uh, uh, Wu in this case, he's a kind of like a mythical, kind of like almost folk hero. He has a biography in the Shiji, but he's very likely a combination of a few figures. Mm -hmm. And he's giving advice to this king of a rival of the Chin State, and he's about to go do battle. And he's giving him advice on how to fight any of the six different states. Yeah. And for the Qin Dynasty, the Qin State, he describes them as their land is harsh and their government is severe. Hmm. Their people will uh, fight bravery in the search of, like, you know, of reward, but will at the soonest opportunity abandon their leaders if they're presented with a better opportunity. Oh. So there's this deep current that these reforms are very effective at creating powerful soldiers who are entrepreneur entrepreneurial almost. Mm -hmm. However, it also kind of leads to a moral degradation. Government in, chi in Qin is very you know, transactional. I do this, you give me that. If you don't do this, I'll do this. Okay. And that was viewed as like kind of deeply disturbing. Okay. Yeah, very like go where the money is. Yeah, exactly. Like mm. um, that's kind of like how the Qin Dynasty gets portrayed by later historians. It's this period that's ruthlessly effective, but like kind of mo morally bankrupt in a way that like, and some of this is Han writers heaping scorn on the Qin after the fact. That is a tradition in Chinese historiography, kind of like making yourself look better mm -hmm. by harping on criticism to previous regimes. But there is definitely a kernel of truth to that because it was confirmed to a large degree in the Qin Law Code, mm -hmm. which was um, kind of like, you know, excavated, as I mentioned, about 40 years ago. Okay. And then the other question I had mm -hmm. when talking about like unification i would assume the borders would be gone and then where do you make your capital that's actually a very interesting question because um once china's unified quote unquote mm -hmm. there's a large period of like kind of redefining borders and redefining what is china mm -hmm. so previously uh so in china there are two great river systems there's the Yangtze, which is like roughly through the lower half of the uh, country and then the yellow river which runs from um beijing down to like the um, sorry down from tibet to mm -hmm. beijing so previously um chinese civilization had been located primarily in the yellow river valley and during the warring states period because the chinese did not only fight each other but also other non-chinese people to the south and to the north mm -hmm. um there had been a gradual expansion into the Yangtze river uh, valley and beyond so the first emperor not only conquers all of this extended territory, but he also begins to expand outward, and he also begins targeting internal divisions within the state. He actually very publicly breaks down old roads and old, like, you know, divisions between feudal domains. There used to be, if you're familiar with um, the concept of border walls in Chinese history, mm -hmm. not only were there um, border walls between, you know, the Chinese and the non-Chinese northern Peruans, but also between the other states within China, very publicly takes these apart. Okay. And these, although just to be clear to your listeners, these aren't like as sophisticated as the modern Great Wall. That's a Ming mm -hmm. Dynasty. That's two thousand years later. That's not two thousand years later. About one thousand five hundred years later. Okay. But like, he does do like a profound period of like breaking down old divisions and then drawing up new ones. He constructs the first Great Wall in the north. As I'm saying, these internal divisions that we had between um, the Chinese are now going to be in the north between us and the barbarians. Okay. You said they were tearing up roads earlier? Yes. 
Yeah, that sounds counterproductive. Well, they're going to build new ones. Like, um, <laughs> it, it's kind of like, so prior to the unification, every, every state had its own, like, kind of road system. It had its own, like, widths, its own, like, um, kind of, like, metrics. These all get abolished, and then there's a profound period of road rebuilding. It's, like, kind of redrawing connections, and they're all going to be according to the state of Chin's metrics. And this is very interesting because he also uses this to break up farmland. So if you imagine a tic-tac-toe board, there's this old concept in Chinese thought called the welfare system. It's this idea of nine equal plots of land um, dividing so like a peasant community has all equal access to like you know the farming resources of the region. He takes that concept and he applies it carte blanche throughout the entire empire, but with one crucial innovation. The central um, like kind of plot in like your tic-tac-toe board, that used to go to the Lord's family as like a feudal rent. That instead goes to the state. So oh. in even the most humble way, a farmer is like farming his land for like the betterment of his empire mm-hmm. and like kind of organizing his world around it. Okay. So I feel like there's a lot of research you do. So I just want to quickly ask you, uh, what's your like typical work day like? Well, my typical work day is I tend to do a lot of my work um, – by doing a lot of reading from the Shuji and taking notes and then mm-hmm. comparing it to what is previously said about like this kind of practice by historians like Mark Edward Lewis or Yuri Pines or the Chinese historians who've been translated. And then also comparing that with primary sources that have been found from the era and trying to like kind of compare that to current theories of like social, like kind of like, you know, community uh, building, the use of space and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of writing typically at night okay. once I've gotten that and kind of digested it. All right. Do you ever hit like writer's block? Oh, definitely. Like <laughs> it's often frustrating because I know what I want to say with it, right? Like, mm-hmm. but like in like all the pieces there, it's just like how to articulate it in the fewest amount of pages possible. Okay. Yeah. This sounds like an intense work day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's no road building, but you know. <laughs> well, you said you started writing at night. So how long do you stay off writing? Um, usually I go to be- bed around 2 um, a.m. So, like, I'll, like, probably sit down around 10, you know, brew a, brew a tea, uh, work for four hours, and then usually I'll do four hours of research earlier in the day, kind of break it up. When do you wake up? Um, usually, usually around, like, 8 or so, and then... So you sleep for six hours? It's not the healthiest work schedule, you know. I mean, I wish I could sleep for six hours. <laughs> That's like my ideal. If I could sleep for six hours and mm-hmm. be functional, I'd be happy. Well, I think you pinned me with like, you know, history addiction. Um, it's a lack of uh, sleep deprivation. <laughs> I'm glad it's out of passion and not out of just heavy workload. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Because you come into that a lot in the surviving literature about the Qin Dynasty and about the Qin Law Code. That's probably one of the things that led to the dynasty's collapse. Is just this perception that the Qin Dynasty is like constantly extracting more and more, and wasn't like living up to the promise of a unified state, that you know, in theory, guaranteed peace. Mm-hmm. It's constant expansionism, but also like kind of road uh, building and like public work expansion. Okay, awesome. It was awesome having you on the show, mm-hmm. but I think we're almost out of time. So, Anthony, take us away. <laughs> All right. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Anthony Cruz. I've been your co-host, Sean Mander. And we've been speaking with Jacob Vanderhoven. And this episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson.
If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.